Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today between showers, sunshine beaming down into the sandstone surrounds of the courtyard at Lowther Castle. And I'm in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. Goodness me. I'm grateful for the sunshine and the blue sky, but the clouds caused me to put on this lemon jacket. Innocently at the time, uh, I popped it on and then I realised the context. Appropriately set up for today. Put us on the map, Mark, before we delve into the colour of your jacket. Yes, well, we're about four miles from... Penrith and if I look over my shoulder I can see Beacon Hill, Beacon Edge and the very topmost part of Penrith and uh, we're at the eastern end of the National Park, the lower end of Ullswater. That's right and of course we were just down the way uh, a few weeks ago at lovely Ascombe but we're up here now Mark and returning to the little clue you teased us with, the colour yellow is very important to this setting. And it's important because of one of the castle's previous residents. This is Hugh Lowther, the fifth Earl of Lonsdale, known as the Yellow Earl. One of the most extravagant and high-profile members of the English aristocracy, Mark. Somebody whose life is woven through with a certain number of myths, (laughs) but also there's a, a lot of truth in there too. This is somebody who inherited wealth beyond dreams very early in life. 75,000 acres uh, of land, vast coal fields on the West Cumbrian coast, and a huge amount of money. And he pretty much squandered the lot. A remarkable tale of 19th century extravagance. And we have a fabulous guest to talk to us about this gentleman, the Yellow Earl, today. Who's our guest today, Mark? Well, we've got Charlotte Fairburn, who's the content manager for the Lowther Estates. That's right, and she's going to talk to us not only about the Yellow Earl, but also some of the historical context of when he was born and this huge estate. And we'll try and work out today, was this a man, a hero, or a bit of a villain? Um, Certainly had some questionable moments in his life, including one where he was asked to leave the country by the Queen. So, (laughs) wonderful stories here, and as you say, we've got Charlotte on board to take us through that remarkable history She's standing there in the courtyard, so let's go and take our first steps on today's Country Stride. Well, the clock has just rung, quarter to one in the afternoon, and uh, I'm in the courtyard beneath a turret of the Grand Castle, looking uh, across this lovely setting, which has got these Hispania trees set decoratively in the courtyard. I'm with Charlotte Fairburn. Could you describe something of your background, Charlotte? Nice to be here. I'm from Scotland originally, but I've lived in Cumbria for most of my grown-up life. I'm a writer by trade, and I'm also a friend of Jim and Vanessa Lowther, who own Lowther Castle. Through that friendship, I sort of fell into working here and being there. I quite like to think of it as being the Shenachie, which is a Scottish word for the clan storyteller. Now, today's great focus is the Yellow Earl and all the distinctive elements that go with his life. He's described in the Dictionary of National Biography as a sportsman. You know how they give a sort of summary of what a person is. He was a larger-than-life figure who became a celebrity. He was probably one of the first celebrities, if celebrity means being famous for being famous. We remember him because the AA... He was a founder member of that, so the yellow colour comes from him. The colour of the away strip for Arsenal Football Club is yellow because of him. 
and he's remembered because he was just incredibly famous in his day. Well, we'll take a little bit more of a wander around the building to get some kind of context of the setting. I've come into the central element of the gaunt ruins of the castle itself that has suffered from being roofless for rather a long time, but it has an ambience accentuated by the sound of the rooks that swirl above our heads. And there's a lovely feeling of age and dignity about this space that's almost like a church. Can you describe this uh, approach perhaps, Charlotte? There's a doorway and a staircase that once was here. We're standing in the staircase tower. This building was designed by the architect Robert Smirk. You came up this grand staircase and there were alcoves all the way up to a great height. They had different statues of different saints in them. There were stuffed heads all the way around from ground to roof, which is a not inconsiderable height. At one stage, there was an elephant's head right at the top. The fact that the elephant's head looked very small gives you an idea of the scale of the staircase and the kind of flamboyance of the decoration. Preceding all this grandeur, the family has its roots perhaps going back to the 10th century? We don't exactly know when the first lather came along. The word lather is Norse for foaming water and that was the name of the river. There was an early Christian Viking called Dolphin who generally appears at the top of the family tree and he was in the 11th century. There were various iterations of houses. There was a Motten Bailey, there was a castle. There's going to be an archaeological dig this summer to establish when it was built and whether the Normans actually made it here because, as you probably know, Cumbria is not in the Doomsday Book. By the 17th century... A Viscount Lonsdale built Lowther Hall. He was a favourite at court. He was given the title Viscount Lonsdale by William III, who was a friend and supporter of his. He actually knocked down Lowther Village and rebuilt it up the hill. He remodelled the church and he built this huge Queen Anne building, which had various wings. He got frescoes painted by Verio, who painted the frescoes in Hampton Court Palace, among other places. Then, sadly, all that was burnt down in 1780 after he died actually and the house remained in ruins for a hundred years until this building was built between 1816 and 1812. Now one of the things I find fascinating about the Lowther story is its connection with the coal mining industry and the development of Whitehaven. It was developed by the Lowthers of Whitehaven, which were a younger son branch of the Lowthers of Lowther. There were various Sir Johns and then a Sir James who took it upon themselves to sink various pits. A lot of them are very complicated and under the sea. Sir John Lowther, the second baronet of Whitehaven, was instrumental in developing Whitehaven as a town. Under his watch, Whitehaven became a much more significant port than it had been before. And then Sir James Lowther of Whitehaven really took it off. He designed the town and it was built on a grid system, which was then picked up and used in New York. So <laughs> funny kind of ripples there. Um, it was a big source of money for the family from the 16th century onwards. One of the intriguing characters uh, within the dynasty from the 18th century was Wicked Jimmy. He played the inheritance game rather brilliantly and he inherited from the Lowthers of Swillington and the Lowthers of Whitehaven. Who's Swillington? Swillington in Yorkshire. At the age of 18, 19, Wicked Jimmy was the wealthiest man in England by a country mile and that came from land and from the mines at Whitehaven. Wicked Jimmy himself was, I think he might have probably been bipolar. He wouldn't have said that then, but he was kind of a genius. He could recite poetry for hours on end, apparently. He spoke fluent Latin. Uh, he was known as having an absolutely ferocious temper. He was incredibly mean. One of the things he did, which people around here are quite interested in, is that his political and land agent was John Wordsworth, the father 
father of the poet. And he just refused to pay him. And for years and years, the family were unpaid and impoverished and they'd spent a lot of money trying to sue him and he died not having paid them eventually those debts were sorted out by wicked jimmy's successor he was a massive political warmonger he owned rotten boroughs burgages they were called and he was always playing people off against each other it's a really genuinely hated figure he married this rather lovely girl who was the daughter of the Earl of Butte and they also were big in coal mining she was called Mary Stewart she had a horrible time with him and eventually she went off to Fulham and led her own life rather remarkably and he had a number of mistresses the last of whom that we know of and in fact there was a letter between them in the archives at Carlisle she was called Betsy Lewis and she was the daughter of a publican he loved her towards the end of his life and she died young and he was so upset the story goes that he kept her body in a glass-topped coffin because he was reluctant to bury her Fast forward in time to the construction of this remarkable building. Can you give us the story of who built it and its connection with Hugh Lowther the Yellow Earl? So Wicked Jimmy's godson, because Wicked Jimmy didn't have any children, was William, who became the first Earl of Lonsdale. And he built this castle. His heir was the second Earl of Lonsdale, also called William, who did have children, but they were all illegitimate. And then it was his nephew who inherited, who was third Lord Lonsdale, Henry, who had various, I think he had seven children, of whom the Yellow Earl was the second son. So now we've got to the man himself, um, I think we ought to get into another setting to get another perspective on Hugh the Yellow Earl. Well I've come into the Countess's uh, summer house, we've come down some steps past what is known as the Countess's garden which is a sunken area to the uh, west of the actual battlements of the castle. It's got daffodils growing in the sunshine at the moment, look really attractive. It's a, a space that presumably has served many purposes, but now looks like a lovely garden. Hugh was born in uh, 1857, I believe. Could you tell us a little bit about his mum and dad, his mother and father? His mother was Emily Caulfield. She was uh, an Irish girl. She was described as gentle and retiring and his father was the third Lord Lonsdale Henry who by the time he died weighed 22 stone he was hunting mad and I think they practically had to use a crane to get him on a horse at the end he was possibly not a terribly engaged father I would imagine could you describe something about the early life of Hugh physically I think he was quite an impressive character from an early stage he was quite sort of rumbustious he always had a tremendous affinity with animals dogs and horses I think he was largely ungovernable his mother who I described as gentle and retiring didn't have much authority over him anyone who tried to teach him anything he made their lives absolute misery probably because he wasn't particularly cerebral and probably because he was physically very energetic He went to Eton briefly. I think he was there for two years. His father, pulling his hair out, got him a tutor-stroke governor called Jem Mace, who was this bare-knuckle fighter. Um, And one of the characteristics of the Yellow Earl, which I think is true from an early age, was his ability to self-mythologise. So you never quite know what the truth was. Some people say he was six foot seven when he was a mature adult. I'm not quite sure, but he was a very tall, physical man. And boxing was a natural thing for him to do from an early age. Hugh wasn't exactly a bright lad, didn't have the terrible talents that um, his brother had. And his brother was groomed to take over the estates and be the, the man of the future, the new Earl of Lonsdale. But that didn't actually happen in the event. No, so Henry and Pussy had a total of seven children, the oldest of whom was St George, and then Hugh, the Yellow Earl, was his younger brother. St George was a thinker. He was very interested in water, sailing, yachting. Uh, He inherited very young, and he died very young. He died aged 26, possibly, probably due to alcohol. 
his younger brother had not been at all been expecting to inherit. St George was the brains and wasn't expected to fall off the perch at 26. And Hugh, he'd obviously been very indulged. He went to London as a young blade and kicked up his heels. And there's no way that he was expecting to have to be responsible and grown up. That wasn't in his mind at all. Separating fact from fiction in young Hugh's life is going to be, and was always, a difficulty. But there was mention of him joining a circus. Yes, it's said that at 18 he spent a year in Switzerland performing tricks with horses. And it's certainly true, there's a little painting in the exhibition of him as a young boy teaching an old poodle new tricks. So uh, we have Hugh uh, at the age of, what, 25, a flamboyant character living largely in London, inheriting tens of thousands of acres and estates all over the show and castles, you name it. What was Lowther Castle like at the time? In the 1880s, the various earls who'd lived here, they'd all been huge art collectors, particularly the second earl. He was very, very keen on ceramics and paintings. So at that stage, the house would have been groaning with artworks. It had an incredible library. I'm not quite sure who bought the library, but when that was dispersed in the 1940s, it was a remarkable thing for bibliophiles. There were a lot of stable staff. There were a lot of gardeners. It's 130 acres of garden. And the house would have been, I think, remarkable. The wonderful plaster work in the saloon done by Berlusconi, you can see that at Eastner Castle. That's all fluted on the ceiling, rather beautiful. Like many Victorian houses, possibly a bit on the gloomy side. A lot of bedrooms, a lot of bathrooms, a big, big house. A lot of plumbing. A lot of plumbing, yes, probably not very comfortable. Lady Lonsdale's loo, which was the yellow Earl's wife, was a double-seater. Um, I've got a photograph of it in the exhibition. It's rather brilliant. <laughs> so at the age of 30, Hugh got married, although I gather it wasn't approved by the in-laws. By that point, Hugh had a, a reputation for fast living in London. He had a sort of questionable taste in friends. He'd done a bit of gambling. Ten days before he got married, he bet an American long-distance walker that he could cover 100 miles faster on foot than the American. And he did indeed beat him and did it at an average of over six miles an hour from start to finish, which is quite something. All those kind of exploits, you can imagine, it was the Marquess of Huntley and Gordon. You know, they were doer Scots from Aberdeenshire. And their daughter, Grace, a nice girl, but she fell for him. She was a very accomplished horsewoman, and I think that's probably what drew them to each other. But the parents would have just seen this profligate spendthrift who was bouncing around boxing and doing whatever he was doing. You know, he wouldn't have been a desirable mate for their daughter. Well, we've got a little bit of a feeling he's just got married. Uh, we ought to go and see something of this extravagance, and I think we can see that on the displays within the castle itself. We've come into this uh, very startling, if not particularly big room, but it is yellow in every sense. So you're very much aware of the yellow earl's presence in this context. There's a tall, uh, larger-than-life figure of the man himself, dressed as a huntsman with his cap on, with his crop and his riding boots. And um, I'm really intrigued by the notion of why yellow is so resonant with Hugh himself. Well, it's just something he picked up from the Lyther Crest. The Crest is one of the earliest, actually, in English arms-bearing families. And if you look at it, it's very simple. It's a shield with six what they call annulets, circles, which are meant to um, signify the days of creation. And the colour is ore, which is gold. So he picked out yellow from that and ran with it, clearly. His fondness of yellow permeated so many elements of his choices in life and how he presented things. The more he grew into his celebrity, the more he liked to stamp his stamp on things. You can find photographs of him with only chestnut horses, with only golden Labradors. They had buff-coloured turkeys. The livery for his carriage-driving horseman was yellow. 
there's a wonderful photograph of 16 Rolls Royces lined up outside Lyther. You can't see from the photograph that they're yellow, but they are. And I believe every day in the courtyard there was something of a ritual. Every morning at nine o'clock he would go and inspect the horses in the stables. And prior to that, some grooms were expected to lay out in coloured sand the crest... And then he would appear at nine o'clock with his dogs. They'd canter through the sand. It would be all blown away to nothing. And that was the end of that. Everybody was dressed in some kind of yellow uniform. He used to go around with his own private orchestra. They had their own train carriage, as indeed did his dogs. And I think they were probably all in yellow, yes. It was an affectation and an addiction. Now, moving around in this space, I see there's a cabinet with a taxidermy model of a husky standing on a map of British Columbia and Alaska. What's the context of all that? When Hugh was fairly recently married, he was still a bit of a hellraiser. He was rushing around London with the Prince of Wales, tipping his hat at people like Lily Langtree. And he fell in love with this actress called Violet Cameron, who actually was quite a successful actress in her day. And he became her financial backer. And she had a theatre company, which she ran with her husband, Monsieur de Bonsoud, who was a Moroccan tea taster and didn't particularly take kindly to being cuckolded by Hugh Lonsdale. The theatre company had some dates in New York. Lonsdale and de Bonsoud had fisticuffs. The Yellow Earl did have at least one daughter, if not two, with Violet Cameron. It became a very public scandal, and it was in the newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic. By the time they came back to the UK... Queen Victoria said that she wasn't really very amused and could he kindly make himself scarce. So in getting scarce, he decided he would go to the polar regions in some way. Somehow he got embroiled in some kind of scientific exploration and he went off to Canada and the wilder parts of Canada. And actually, he was very brave and he was very stoic and it was rather a remarkable thing that he did. He spent a lot of time there... I think there were something like 67 huskies. This husky is one of the three or four that he brought back. He sent his footman back to Canada to bring them over, and that's actually one of them, and he had him stuffed. That was really the beginning of his celebrity. Everyone knew about this remarkable endeavour. He brought back all these incredible Inuit artefacts, which are now in the British Museum, He became famous not only for the scandal, but also for something quite heroic. In the midst of this space, also in a glass cabinet, is a lot of uh, silverware, candles, the sense of it being laid out for a really grand meal. And intriguingly, we have a place set here for his imperial majesty, the German emperor. So this was a feast for the real elite We've established that the Yellow Earl was a great sportsman and one of the sports he enjoyed was yachting and he was at the Cow's Regatta and he came across the Kaiser. I think they were both vain men, so they recognised friends in one another. And the Kaiser came here on two occasions, in 1895 and in 1902, both of them for shooting. The Yellow Earl laid on all sorts of pageantry. He organised the streets of Penrith to be lined with people waving flags, and there was a great big feast at a hotel in Windermere. He came in August. It was all about grouse shooting, about deer stalking. The Kaiser, as you probably know, had a withered arm, and he was also, um, as I've already mentioned, rather a vain man, so the Yellow Earl had to organise a lot of bunnies to be imported so that he could have an incredible time shooting an unbelievable bag. (laughs) (laughs) It was a moment of great pageantry and when he came to say thank you to the Yellow Earl for having him as his guest, he produced produced a great big white marble bust of himself. (laughs) So if you were in his company, perhaps around this table or just socially, what would you have been like? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I'm in the book by Douglas Sutherland. Douglas Sutherland describes him as being shy. And it's possible, I think, to be a shy extrovert. 
And people change as they grow older, obviously. And as he grew more confident, I think he probably grew more pleased with himself. I don't think he'd have got a word in edgeways, if I'm being perfectly honest. On the other hand, he would have had some great stories to tell. You come round a little way along the passage, we come to a cabinet which has various artefacts that really draw attention to Hugh's passion for sport and horses and animals. And uh, my eyes are alight quickly. I can see Pat Rice, one of the Arsenal players, where the Arsenal team are wearing their away kit. Who brought in his colour into sport? He was associated with football and he had a great love of various sports, I gather. He loved all sport because he was a natural sportsman himself. The away strip of the Arsenal football team, as you describe, is yellow, or it was yellow. He was a chairman of the football club for a while. And uh, if I move along the space a little way, there's what looks like a metal-bounded leather belt. What's that? Anyone who's listening to this um, podcast who is interested in boxing will know about the Lonsdale belt. Lord Lonsdale and the then Marquess of Queensbury were both members of something called the Pelican Club and they became involved in regulating boxing before it had been bare-knuckle and they could be quite brutal. So we have the Queensbury rules which came in from that period and we also have the Lonsdale belt and the Yellowell commissioned the first one from Mappin and Webb and it was something like £14,000 then and the first winner was... um, Freddie Welsh. Anyway, that's a very early version of it from Grasmere Sports. It was a sort of precursor to it. The Lonsdale Bell survives to this day as a distinctive, uh, distinguishing achievement as a boxer, links Hugh with uh, the Beclouse of Drumlarig. So you have this sense of sporting history in that one belt. Also, in addition to this, you've got the horses. This is just such a brilliant illustration of Hugh in the round. That photograph that you can see there, Hugh is dressed in full hunting kit. He's got, I don't know, half a dozen footmen with him. He's got this lovely chestnut horse that is being brought out of the train at Clifton. That just sort of sums him up. He was a passionate huntsman, he was a passionate horseman, and he was extravagant to his fingertips. And uh, elsewhere in the cabinet is something that I remember from my youth. My father was in the AA, and in fact, I was a member of the AA, Automobile Association, and that distinctive badge that all cars had, and you got a salute from the patrolman, so there's something I can remember from my youth there. Uh, Hugh was involved with the founding of that organisation for the early days of motoring. He loved carriages, and they were always yellow, and then along comes the motor car, and he's a bit like Toad of Toad Hall. He's incredibly excited about this. But he's a sort of a visionary in that respect. He's made chairman of the AA when it begins and so yellow therefore became part of their livery. We've come round to the north side of the castle. I'm looking down, I think it's the Emperor's Drive, which runs due north, I would say. I haven't got the map with me, but it goes towards Clifton Station. And this is the drive that, uh, on a coach of horses, the Kaiser will have arrived at the castle along here. A great statement of grand approach. There's more to be said about this setting as well. This was built as a castle in the days when castles were no longer needed. Nevertheless, it has all the trappings of a castle, these great ramparts here, those funny little towers there, the gatehouse here, which it's got arrow slits. If the Scots turned up with braziers, you could just hop along and shove a few arrows through the holes. But you can see on the top of the turrets over there, for example, that they've got concrete roofs. The castle was requisitioned during the Second World War after Hugh had left. They put concrete lids on these turrets so that they could use them as ammunition stores. And in this wonderful open space, tanks exercised here? They were experimenting with a new weapon called the Canal Defence Light. It was a very, very powerful light that was set on top of a tank. I guess it would have worked that there would have been a battery of tanks and they would all have these blinding lights on them and that you know whoever was advancing towards them would just be paralyzed in their glare 
sun, really. I think so. I mean, it, it did have slight flaws because if you went round to the side, obviously you you were fine. You could see the tanks. Um, <laughs> it was a very secret mission, but when they were playing with it at night, people in Penrith apparently could read their newspaper by the light of it. <laughs> Eisenhower came and inspected it. Churchill came and inspected it. They took it off to war very late in the day, and it was a complete disaster. We may have uh, let forward a little bit there, but uh, Hugh himself was very much involved with recruiting in the First World War. As many listeners will know, in the First World War, they ran out of men very quickly, and Kitchener came up with this idea of PALS battalions. And the idea of PALS was that the soldiers were PALS, so they'd go to a certain community and recruit all the kind of war-worthy men that there were. Hugh Lonsdale got very behind this. He created the Lonsdale PALS battalion from people all around here. They trained in Carlisle. He kitted them out. Apparently, he sent them Christmas. Christmas puddings when they were in the Somme. They had this wonderful man who was their commander called Percy Machel. He took them over the top at the Somme and they were practically all wiped out in a one I mean, it was absolutely tragic. So he brought together the Powell's Battalion. Fundamentally, he was much more comfortable with the common man, really. He drove his carriages behind George and Mary at Ascot and in royal pageants and what have you. But he was far less aloof than the royal family were. And if you look at his friends, mostly they were people who worked for him. He was very, very close to his gamekeeper, Robinson. We've got lovely photos of them together. He was very close to his chief horseman, his footman... Uh, somehow or other, they picked up on the fact that he liked your ordinary people. We're coming towards the end of this story of this remarkable man's life. Our best bet is to go down towards the church and see his last resting place. We've come down the park across the open road and come through some gates and into the churchyard on a pretty breezy afternoon. Thank goodness the wind is uh, not accompanied by rain. Uh, The sun's dancing across the churchyard and there's daffodils to our right drawing the eye towards the church and the mausoleum just in front of it. Below us you can hear and see the River Lather itself, which actually looks very lathering at the moment. We've had quite a storm last night. The Lather family, we've gone through the Powell's Brigade in the First World War, which was very sorry tale. The First World War accelerates the decline of the family fortunes. Looking at the history of the Lowther family in the Rand, they very much chart the fortunes of the United Kingdom. In the early 20th century, the mines started to fail post the First World War. Everybody felt the pinch. The consequence of Hughes' lavish spending at the beginning of the century were just coming home to roost. He had to sell his hunting box in Rutland in 1926. He and Gracie stayed on here, but the um, trustees said... We can't keep bankrolling Lowther Castle, and so they left on the 11th of January 1936. After that, nobody lived in the castle. The tank regiments requisitioned the building, and there was a caretaker called Percy Warwick who writes brilliant accounts of all the rooms, but no Lowther lived in it after that. Well, what we can see in front of us in a tiny little walled enclosure are two crosses constructed from some form of granite They're two different types of granite, that's certainly true. When you think that Hugh was such a flamboyant person, to see such a simple grave, this mimics others in a line here, uh, I'm sure he would have been appalled, quite frankly. Can you explain a little bit more here, Charlotte? Uh, Yes, so on the right here is Gracie's grave. She died in 1941. I'm not sure whether she had a really wonderful life with Hugh. I suspect she was, apart from anything else, she was totally overshadowed by him. I suppose that was a woman's lot in that class at that time. But nevertheless, she also had a hunting accident very early on in their marriage. And so she was described as an invalid. I don't think she was able to hunt, which was her great love. And they didn't have children. 
she did great things during the First World War with nursing and she got a CBE for that. So she did get a little bit of recognition in her own right. There are lots of photographs of them together, but I think she was probably more dutiful than loving. Hugh died in 1944, so three years after Gracie. They'd been banished to Rutland. I think they were just renting a house. It was, by their standards, modest. I don't expect it was terribly modest. But there's a sweet photograph of him in that Douglas Sutherland book of him as an old man walking down a racetrack and being saluted by everybody. And he must be in his very final years. And he still looks very genial. I don't think he was an unhappy person at all, actually. That must have been one of his great qualities. As you say, you would have expected this to be bells and whistles, and it's actually very modest. Well, Hugh has left the scene... But the family seat here at Lowther, the castle itself, received a great deal of loss after his time. Can you explain what happened? As I said, he left here in 1936, and from then until the tank regiments came in the early 40s, the house was just empty. It was still stuffed full of goodies, but it was empty. Uh, Hugh had never really invested in the fabric of the building. It was riddled with dry rot. And when he died in 1944, it was his younger brother, Lancelot, who by that stage was in his late 70s, inherited it. And he inherited it at the turning point of the Second World War. Everybody's finances were in dire straits at that point. He took one look at this rotting building and thought, how on earth am I going to pay death duties? And also, they did not have the money to plough into the castle to bring it back to what it had been. So they had this incredible art collection. They had a huge number of Hogarths, this wonderful library, amazing ceramics. And Lancelot just thought, OK, I'm going to put it up for sale. And in 1947, over a period of about four months, 7,800 lots were sold from a Titian at one end to wooden spoons at the other. A small footnote to that, the Titian, which was a man's head, went for £30. A lot of people came to the sale, including Alexander Corder, who was a film director, K-O-R-D-A, if you remember, and he bought quite a lot of things as stage props. Most lots went for buttons. The castle was to suffer a further blow, a near-mortal blow, when the roof came off. Lancelot finally died in his 80s in 1953, and the turn came of James, who was his nephew, I think, I've got that right. He was only 30, he'd fought in the war, he was an engineer in a tank corps, he did the Normandy landings. He'd been at Cambridge, he was a bright boy, he was quite a left-wing thinker, and he looked at the castle, it was rotting from the inside. He tried to get it repurposed, horrible word, as a mental institution institution, as an agricultural college. In fact, Lancelot tried that before him as well. But nobody had any money, so he decided he was going to knock it down. And in the 50s, as you probably know, big houses like that too were being knocked down every week. The 50s were an absolute battlefield for the English stately home. The people of Penrith heard about this and there was an uproar. And so he was prevailed upon not to do that. So he thought the next best thing was to take the roof off and dismantle all the trappings. A lot of the stone went into the grounds. There were lower floors and they're all filled in with rubble. And all the doorknobs, the ashlar, the downpipes, they were sold. The roof was taken off in 56 and the demolition sales were in 57. We reach into the 1960s and a resurgence, a new generation of Lowthers take a firmer grip on its future. I think we'll move on a little bit further to have a consideration of where we stand now within the context of this remarkable estate. It's been wet overnight, so the pasture and the parkland is a bit damp underfoot. We've moved up more towards the castle itself and the Vista Avenue is close to the left. Trees predominate around us. And since the 1960s, that sense of repurposing this whole estate and the landscape have been quite a driving force. 
We were talking about James Lonsdale, who took the roof off, and he largely ignored the castle for 50 years, actually. His son, Jim, who he passed it to, wasn't really allowed to do anything with it during James's lifetime. Um, Jim bought the castle from him for a pound, and uh, he died in 2006. And Jim was uh, approached by a man called Brian Gray, who has been a real mover and shaker in the Northwest. And at the time, he was chairman of the Northwest Development Agency. And he saw that Lowther would be a very good recipient for the funds. It would regenerate this area in terms of tourism. And he really put the fire into Jim's belly. They set up something called the Lowther Castle and Gardens Trust. And between them, they turned Lowther into what is now a massive visitor attraction that has 120,000 visitors a year. Jim Lowther is renowned for his love of nature, very much expressed in his love of beekeeping. About eight years ago or something, a bee light bulb went on in his head. He's passionate about beekeeping. He now has over 650 hives, I think. He set up a company called the Lake District Honey Company, and it very much goes hand in hand with nature-friendly farming. They've re-meandered the river, they've introduced beavers, they're creating wetlands. He's working closely with all sorts of nature partnerships, the Woodland Trust, the RSPB. There are wildflower meadows being planted. This has been going on for the last five or six years and already the results are really wonderful to start to see new birds coming that we didn't know about. They're building up a big herd of longhorn and they are grazing freely because their big cloven feet are better for breaking up the sward and allowing under seedlings to come through. It's a great way of getting dormant seeds to revive. If you love nature, there'll be no silent spring on Lowther's estate so far as Jim's concerned. Casting our minds back to the central figure of our conversation today, the Yellow Earl, how should we remember him? Well, in terms of what he bequeathed people, I would think the boxing regulation was a kind of gift to mankind, if you will. Mm. The establishment of the AA, that was for the greater good. A lot of the time it was about self-indulgence. And in terms of Lowther, is he remembered fondly? He's remembered with dry amusement, I suppose. (laughs) He wasn't a man with a great agenda. He wasn't political, I don't think, at all. I think the only thing he was really interested in was just himself, if I'm being totally frank. (laughs) If you were to go back into one moment in this colourful man's background, yellow though it may be, (laughs) is the one moment you'd love to be a witness to? I don't know if you've heard of the Delhi Derba. In the early 1900s, King George V and Mary would go out to India and they'd have these great rallies. And I think it was the 1912 Delhi Derba that the Yellow Earl organised all the horses for. And I've looked at old photographs of those and the pageantry. I'm a bit of a horse nut myself and I just think that must have been a wonderful occasion to be at. Should we think of him as a hero or more of a villain? I don't think he was either, actually. He wasn't a villain. He didn't cause people harm. And he was a popular hero in the sense that he was loved. But apart from, as I said, the boxing and the AA and... I mean, he founded things like the Royal International Horse Show, which I personally absolutely love watching. I kind of glued to it every year. Does that make him a hero? I don't know. I think he was just a very flawed individual who gained a great deal of recognition for all sorts of reasons, including his wealth. Gosh, it's been wet as we wandered across the park and back, but the sun's come out at last. Not for long, I'm sure, because it's that nature of day, but it's a moment we'll grab for our quick-fire questions. First one, Charlotte, what was your very first memory of the Lake District? Well, I was brought up in Scotland, and I remember coming here... Do you remember Robert Carrier, the chef, and he had a hotel? It must have been in the late 70s. And I think we stayed at the Rothley Manor. 
So I would have been eight or nine or something like that. It must have been proper Lake District weather. I remember seeing the becks tumbling down the hills. I remember my father bouncing up and down on the double bed at the Rothay Manor. <laughs> I remember feeling carsick, which I usually did. Oh, I remember that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then I didn't come back to the Lake District until I um, teamed up with my husband sort of like 25 years later. We're all about mountains here. Have you a favourite fell? Um, I live in the Howgills and I look down south through the cleavage of the Howgills, if you will. It's hard not to love the Howgills. Absolutely. I've never heard the Loon Gorge described as that. <laughs> Next question. If you had a day to yourself in the Lake District, what would you do? I'd probably sit down somewhere and read a book with a nice view. I would go to places like... I love secret places, like Pendragon Castle, which you've no doubt covered, but um, just places off the beaten track. I've got it in my mind. I'd love to go and see that chapel that Anne Clifford had that's in a field somewhere on the other side of the A66. Ah, It's still got... Yes. The Quaker House outside Sedbo, what's that called? Brig Flats. Brig Flats, that's absolutely my kind of thing. That is so charming. Going around and looking at the places that are accessible, but they're not overrun. Yes, I think you're absolutely right about Nine Kirks. You go down on the Emont Meadows and you wonder, how's this here? A66 completely ignores it. Have you got a Lakeland hero or heroine, dead or alive? I'm quite interested in Anne Clifford. I don't think she'd have been full of jokes, but she was quite interesting. And the other person I would have liked to have met is Hugh Walpole, who I think you did a podcast on, because I absolutely loved Rogue Harris. I think it's an amazing book. Yes, I think his day is still to come again. I also just like the fact that he was he was a man before his time in a way. You know, there he was. He had his boyfriend. He was hiding away up here. He was a brilliant writer, beautiful prose. He must have been an interesting person. Have you got a favourite Lakeland pub that you love to be in? I'm really interested in the Farmer's Arms at Tulva. I don't know whether you've been there. It's been taken over by Grisdale Arts. It's a super cool place. It's a really old building. And it's a very interesting dynamic of old and new. Adam Sutherland, who runs Grisdale Arts, he's a genius. And the food is delicious. They grow their own vegetable. It's really cool. Now you've introduced something that will cause many of our listeners to discover Tulva magic. Cumbria's got many communities. Is there a a village you particularly love? Askham is such a pretty village. I mean, it's hard to beat it, isn't it? There are one or two in the Eden Valley that come close, but I think Askham, it's up there. I've asked them and you've told me. (laughs) If you're Prime Minister for the day, is there one thing you'd like to do for the heritage and landscape of Cumbria and the Lake District? I'd like to wave a magic wand. I don't know if prime ministers are granted magic wands and teach all the farmers how to get in touch with nature in a good way and to help us kickstart the whole nature-friendly farming thing. Charlotte, it's been absolutely splendid. I've really loved your company. Uh, There are things happening this year, I believe. We've got one event in particular, which is called 10,000 Daffodils, which starts on April the 24th and will be there till the 24th of June. It's an installation of 10,000 ceramic daffodils. It's been done by a potter from the Arleswater Valley. Each ceramic daffodil will be sold and raises money for four charities that are connected with the Arleswater Valley and one that deals with young men in suicidal crisis and the other one is a homelessness shelter in London. Well, I hope a host will come and enjoy it. journey's end the rain is not with us anymore mark but it's been squally <laughs> it has that uh, i brought the umbrella but it, it came and it went so quickly i wasn't able to bring it out in time we've uh, fought our way through it but we've had some lovely moments and so I, i've really enjoyed today's episode we both knew bits and bobs about the yellow world didn't we before we came out i hadn't clocked the whole story at all what did you make of him mark do you think you would have liked him Yes, I I think I would. All football fans, uh, especially at the moment with Arsenal top of the Premier League, will uh, think of him as being quite some guy who involved himself with the people's sports. And the fact that he was a boxer, wow, 
he must have been one hell of a formidable man. Among the choice moments that came out of today's podcast for me is that extraordinary invitation, or not so much an invitation uh, as an order, to leave the country for that trip to Alaska. Yeah, he went to the... his 89 Huskies or whatever it was. <laughs> he went to the Yukon, would you believe? <laughs> Unbelievable. And then almost finding a colour as a trademark and going to town on that, creating that little sand pit of the arms every day just so he could go through it. Um, and yeah, that, that photo that Charlotte so eloquently described with all those Rolls Royces, those yellow Rolls Royces outside the walls of Lowther Castle. We're winding down this podcast, so our usual housekeeping. This is episode probably number 99, but it might be 101. But if so, there are many previous episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media, Mark. Oh, at Country Stride 1 on Facebook and Twitter. Feel free to join us on either of those channels. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter if you want to hear more about the behind-the-scenes antics or to get news about our forthcoming event, very exciting, in October, or news about our latest guidebooks. And we've got, very shortly coming out, the Ambleside Walking Companion. You can do all of that at www.countrystride.co.uk. If you would like to support us, you can do so in one of three ways. You can tell your friends and family about the podcast. The more listeners we have, the higher we climb those algorithms. Secondly, you can buy one of our guidebooks, including, as I just mentioned, our forthcoming Ambleside Walking Companion at www.countrystride.co.uk. Finally, you can gift us as little as £2 a month on Patreon, and that money helps us to continue paying the bills and the server charges and we've got one thank you this fortnight thank you to louise privet for supporting us and again if you want to know more about how you can support us www.countrystride.co.uk we don't know quite what we're doing next it depends which number this is (laughs) Um, but for now and lovely break in the weather bit of sunshine late afternoon listen to the rooks all those wonderful rooks We're saying goodbye for now and see you on the next Country Stride.